0: All right, good morning. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here today. Uh, We're going to be in Exodus 14 this week. Like we did last week, we'll try to make our way through the entire chapter. Uh, And so you can head that direction in your Bible. If you are using a scripture journal, one of these, uh, I'll save you some time. We'll be on page 64 to start today. If you're new here or you haven't been around uh, maybe since we took our break from Exodus at the end of the summer and you'd like a scripture journal, you don't have one, Uh, I think we have a handful in the room today, so there should be one or two on each of these side tables, and I think there's a couple back at the Connect table as well, so feel free to grab one of those. As you find your way, um, I want to speak to you briefly about COVID, and I want to talk just for a second about masks, Uh, so don't get nervous, uh, but I I just want to make sure we're really clear here. Um, You probably noticed last week in the gathering, and then even again today, there's a few more masks than there have been through the summer. Uh, I think there's a couple reasons for that. Everybody kind of has their own perspective on this, and I think that's okay. Your elders are not trying to override that at all. Uh, But the way that we've seen the case count rise, some of the strain that we've seen on our hospitals, and then in the last week, our brothers and sisters who serve uh, on the joint base in town have received some additional regulations as well. And so it just seems like a good moment to re-clarify for you guys that that is your decision to make. Your elders are not going to create a mandate in addition to anything that the city is doing, We're not going to demand that from each of you. What we are going to expect from you has less to do with what you do but how you do it, okay? As believers in this body, we have committed from the beginning, it's been over a year now that we've had to deal with masks and the presence of masks in large gatherings. Our ask of you, our request and expectation, I think it's a fair one for you as believers, is that you would treat each other regardless of what decision you are making for yourself or your family or the decision the people around you are making, that you would treat each other with love and compassion, with respect, We've said from the beginning, this is not going to be an issue of division for us. We refuse to let all of that discourse that's happening outside of this gathering impact and decide for us the way that we're going to speak to each other. And so where I will not say to you, you must do this or must not do that when it comes to putting a mask on your face, what I will say is if that becomes an issue of division for you, and I I want to just be upfront and very clear about that, and this goes for me or any other elder as well, Uh, according to the Bible's standard, that level of division becomes an issue of discipline. And so we just aren't going to do that. You can have your political fights if you want in the world. I would recommend that you not do that. I don't think that's a great witness for Jesus. But when we're here gathered together, we're going to treat each other with respect, with kindness. We're going to understand that everybody's coming at this from a different angle. Everybody's family has a different perspective on health and, and what they can handle being exposed to and what they can't. Okay, so as we move forward together, I'm just asking you once again to humble yourselves. And if you haven't done this in a while... Maybe take your perspective, whatever your mental uh, attitude is, on the whole pandemic and just submit that to the Lord in prayer. Ask him, what does he think about that? Okay, the the Bible has a category for plagues. It doesn't necessarily have a category for how to navigate a pandemic as a nation, as a people. And so let's just ask the Lord. I believe that if you'll do that, if you'll be careful, if you'll seek wisdom and guidance from God, you'll probably find what Christians in all of human history have found to be true— that the nuance of the leadership of the Spirit of God is actually more effective and better for you than just accepting some blanket rule for or against something like this. So pray, and God will lead you, and know that when you're gathered here, okay, you have agency in your own life, and we trust that if you're praying and submitting to the Spirit of God, he'll convict and lead you, and that will not become an issue of division. So it just felt like time to kind of update you a little bit. I know that doesn't probably feel like we moved the goalpost at all. We didn't want to. We just want to make sure you remember when you're here, we are about Jesus being in community with each other under the banner of his name. And so we're going to live like people who've been transformed by his love. All right, Exodus 14. So we're two two weeks into expositing uh, the journey of Israel out of Egypt, We finished that at the end of August. They finally reached the point of Exodus after the Passover when the angel of death comes and kills all the firstborn of people who don't mark the doors of their homes with lamb's blood. Not that the blood is magic, but it demonstrates the faith that people have in God that he would tell them to do that and they would respond and obey with obedience. Last week we saw God begin to identify his people and help them self-identify a little bit better as belonging to him. They have no concept of this. To them, the presence of Yahweh, which they didn't even know his name before Moses came out of the desert, but what they would have called Elohim at the time that their ancestors moved into Egypt, those are just stories. It's lore, it's myth. It's possible at different points that those stories are brought up to argue for or against whether a person should live their life a certain way, but it isn't personal for them. It hasn't been for a very long time. And so what feels rote or trite or boring or overly repetitive potentially to you and I, this is God's way of trying to bring his brand new born nation underneath the leadership and under the banner of his name. They don't have a Bible. They don't really have a priest right now. They have Moses who can do a little bit of interceding on their behalf, but for a million and a half people who just left Egypt, they're not going to be able to call him and get a lunch meeting in the next week if they have a question about theology or how to lead their family or how to love people better. So God's giving them these large-scale corporate things to participate in. We talked about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, how Egypt had been leaven in their lives, that they had mixed in the theology and the perspective of the Egyptians in a way that they could no longer discern. They couldn't divide that out on their own. So God gave them a feast every year to reevaluate, have we become more like the world, and do we need to work some of those things back out of our lives so that we can return our focus to Christ? God gave them a way to sanctify or consecrate the firstborn, males, both human and animals, all in the idea, all in the vein of wanting to allow his people to participate in their own holiness and to willingly step into his family instead of having to be drugged behind him, which unfortunately will be a lot of the story today and for the rest of our time in part three of Exodus. So at the very end of chapter 13 last week, we saw God's presence appear as a pillar or a column of fire at nighttime or cloud, or smoke in the day that went before the people. And so Moses wasn't having to constantly steer the whole column. Everybody in this whole huge caravan of people, again, a million and a half people, can see this pillar in the sky, and all they have to do is follow it. So that brings us to chapter 14, verse 1. Let's read. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. So they're going to go back the way they came a little bit and to encamp or set up their camp in front of three specific places that don't mean anything to you, but I'm going to try to briefly explain them to you, okay? pi Hahiroth roughly means excavation or cave. It's very possible that there's a mountain on one side of them that's been used for excavating stone that would have been used to build things like a sphinx or the pyramids in Egypt. There's probably a quarry out here where they're camping, okay? So that's one thing on one side of them. He says then, he mentions um, Migdal, between Migdal and the sea. Migdal roughly means fortress or, or like a castle kind of thing. I know in ancient Egypt, it's not going to look like your Disney princess castle that you're envisioning, but it's a bunch of high walls, which are a huge military advantage. So on one side, you have an excavation site. On the other side, you have a fortress. Whether it's manned or not, doesn't matter. It's up on a mountainside. That's across from the sea, so that's what's out in front of them. And so they kind of find themselves in this box canyon, roughly, with a body of water at one end of it. It's important for later in the story that you understand that that's the geography. He says, set up your camp there in front of baal Zephon. baal Zephon is a Canaanite name, which means there's probably roving Canaanite bands of warriors in this area. Another reason why you and I might choose to not set camp up here, but that's what God says to do. He says, you shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will do this. So God is now giving Moses insight into the heart and mind of the Pharaoh, who probably, because we haven't heard about him in a couple chapters, you and the people of Israel both expected to be done with. They did not think they were going to run into this guy again. God says, Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel that they are wandering in the land. In other words, they're lost. The wilderness has shut them in. Yeah, they're in a box canyon next to the sea. There's no escape. So God is saying, when Pharaoh finds out the sort of predicament that I've put you in, it's going to cause him to do something. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart in verse 4, and he will choose to pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. God's going to allude to that three different times in this passage. I will get glory over Pharaoh and over all of his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's God's command. At the end of verse 4, they did this. They went back the way they came. They went into the canyon between the fortress and the quarry and the sea. They made camp where God told them. Now, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed. Changed from what? Well, from a position of maybe false humility, where they had been beat down by going against God enough that at the end of chapter 12, they send the Egyptians out quickly. They say, go, go fast, don't come back. We don't want to see you anymore. But this is a change now. They said, what is this that we've done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? What a big mistake we made. So he, the Pharaoh, made ready his own chariot, which at that point is the cutting edge of military technology, and he took his army with them, and he took six hundred chosen chariots, so elite leaders, really good warriors, and all the officers over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. So their heads are still head high, or excuse me, their heads are still held high. I think the King James Version translates that verse as they are high-handed. They're just sort of like bouncing on the balls of their feet as they walk out of Egypt. They're so excited. They're so ready. And as they leave defiantly, now Pharaoh's taking that personally. It's not just that he wants to get him back, but he can sense. It's in the definition, in the description here that he can sense that they're defying him. Nothing makes a ruler more angry than people telling them, you're not the boss of me. Verse 9. So the Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and he overtook them. Where? Where does he find them? Encamped By the sea. By Pi Haharath, the quarry, in front of Baal Zephon, the Canaanite region. So they're stuck in this area. It's right where Pharaoh expects them to be, and it's where he finds them. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. Probably the people in the back heard the thundering of the chariot's feet first, or the wheels and the horses' feet first. But eventually word passes up through this enormous column of a million and a half people to the front, and they all begin to look back and they begin to panic. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then, verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Which is a very silly thing to say when Egypt, uniquely among every civilization in human history, is known for its graves. That's what the pyramids are. They're like, is there nowhere to bury us? And Moses is like, yes, there's probably somewhere to bury you. That's all the Egyptians spend their time doing is building stuff to bury dead bodies in, okay? There's a little irony here in the way that they're speaking. But don't judge them, because when you're afraid, you talk like this too. So do I. When you're freaked out, when you think everything's collapsing around you, you're either caught in something you can't get out of, or you realize you're about to run out of money, or somebody gets a diagnosis in your life that makes you panic. When we panic, we say dumb stuff like this. Pardon my language, okay? Okay? Is there nowhere, did you bring us out here because the nation of Egypt isn't big enough to bury us? They're just panicking. They're just shouting at Moses. They're eating him alive, okay? They go on. They say, what have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Now, that's not actually reported in this book, so we don't know if they really said that or not. But again, it could be hyperbole because they're panicking. People say stuff when they're really worried that they wouldn't normally say. For it would have been better for us, this is crazy, to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now Moses says to the people, he's a faithful leader, he's trying his best, he's gonna remember God's promises. He says, fear not, stand firm, and you will see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. Moses has no doubt, God's gonna do the right thing. Now he's probably praying in the back of his head, please God, do this, please, 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 God will work this out for you, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Ooh, that's a little foreshadowing, that's gonna literally be true because of what God's going to do to them. The Lord will fight for you. And then the ESV says, you have only to be silent. Another way to translate the word silent is still. Just stop. Just just calm yourself down, if you can, and watch. God's going to do the thing that he promised to you that he would do. Uh, A lady named Henrietta Mears, who died in the 1950s, she's the mother of Sunday school. If you've never heard of her before, you should read her Wikipedia page. Very interesting. Uh, I would have thought Sunday school came out of the Baptist church. It did not. It came out of the Presbyterian church. Go figure. And in Hollywood, would you have ever guessed that? That Sunday school started in Hollywood. You never know. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Anyway, she wrote this about Exodus. She's written a commentary on basically every book of the Bible. She said, Exodus is the thrilling epic of God hastening to the rescue. It tells of the redeeming work of a sovereign God. Exodus is preeminently the book of redemption in the Old Testament. You've heard me say almost every week. The Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. It begins in the darkness and gloom, yet it ends in glory. It commences. It begins by telling how God came down in grace to deliver an enslaved people, and it ends by declaring how God came down in glory to dwell in the midst of a redeemed people. So for you and I, this scene, Exodus 14, can be a challenge Because uniquely, there may be five other stories in the Bible like it, but there's probably just a handful of stories that you think you know so well that you're tempted to turn your brain off today. You know what's going to happen, right? You're like, why are we taking our time even reading this? You could have just said, and then they crossed the Red Sea, and we could have gone into chapter 15. But the story and the way the story plays out and the reasons behind the actions that God takes are important to you and I. Because there is direct overlap between the physical deliverance of Israel and the spiritual deliverance that we experience when we repent and meet Jesus. In Exodus 14, God has already saved his people. He did it two chapters ago. It's done. They're never going to go back to Egypt. He's told them as much. I'm taking you into the land of promise. But the people themselves are still a product of their previous environment. If you've been married more than five years, you know what this is like. You marry a person, and even though you have rules in your house and expectations, and you guys talk about how you're going to handle money, and who's going to take out the trash, and how often you're going to wash your car or not wash it at all, you still have to resist that urge to be the person you you were before you made that covenant. You still default to those things. You default to, well, I always got groceries on Fridays, so I know we're going to do groceries on Mondays because it works better for the budget, but I just would really rather go on Friday. Or I know that it's important to you, my spouse, that we make the bed every day. I never made a a bed in my life, so I'll try, but probably half the time I'm going to forget because I'm still living out of where I came from. This is the experience of the Israelite people. They are far more Egyptian in nature than you and I tend to give them credit for. When we watch the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments movie, The Egyptian people all have on these Egyptian Halloween costumes, it looks like, okay, with big snakes on their headdresses, and they're wearing, like, skirts. All the men wear skirts. And then the Hebrews look like Renaissance paintings of Jesus. They have long turbans and robes and striped things wrapped around them. That doesn't exist yet. God's people don't look any different from the people around them. They haven't learned to build their own subculture yet. And in some ways, that's to their advantage. But in these moments, externally— They're still wrapped up in where they came from, what they wear, how they speak, the possessions they carry, even many of their names. If you want to do a word study through the book of Exodus, look at how many names of God's people are not Hebrew names at all, but are Egyptian names that they carry with them into the wilderness. And that's just the outside. Internally, yes, they've been saved by God, but they don't know how to live saved yet. This is where the process of sanctification is necessary for those of us who live on this side of Jesus' cross, For these people in the Old Testament, they have to learn from God directly. They don't have anybody to lead them. Moses is trying, but Moses, if you know his story, is not the model believer. He's not the man of faith that Charlton Heston plays him as in the movie, okay? These people aren't even really sure if they believe in Yahweh yet. Yes, they saw the miracles and signs, but they have categories already in their heads for how gods of Egypt can do those things. So it's good that Yahweh has taken credit and been explicit all through the 10 plagues, but for some of these people, based On how thin their faith seems to be, when they find themselves literally boxed in, there's still a lot to learn. Yes, they've come out of Egypt, but for what, they begin asking themselves. They're hemmed in by a fortress on one side, a quarry on the other, a sea in front, and now an angry army behind them. Where will they go? It feels like a trap. There's nowhere to run, and it feels that way because it's true, but what got them there? It's Yahweh's choice. It's him leading them to the land of promise. He says again and again in the way that he lays out his feasts that these are not just arbitrary rules for them to follow, but they are connected to his covenant with Abraham a long time ago, about 500 years before this. And God is appealing to the commitment he made to that dead guy for why he's leading these living people today. He says to them, I'm going to take you to the land of your forefathers. I'm going to take you to the land of Jacob. I'm going to take you to the land of promise. The land that we heard described last week as flowing with milk and honey. My apologies if you're lactose intolerant in the people of Israel. But that was a good thing back then. That was emblematic of wealth, of success, okay? Now, even if these people don't know their personal history well, they know where Canaan is. Yeah, they're 430 years removed from their people having left from there, but they know when God says, I'm going to take you to the land of promise, and all of a sudden they start heading southeast down that peninsula instead of northeast up to the land of promise, something is not making sense here. It's not jiving for them. To give you an example, in my ancestry personally, we are Scots-Irish. I have never been to Scotland. I have never been to Ireland. If you were to drop me off in Edinburgh downtown, I would have no idea. I wouldn't know what my family's like colors of plaid are that you're supposed to have if you're from there. I don't know. I don't know what haggis means. I would probably order it and throw up. I'm not sure. But I can tell you this. If you told me we were going to go to Scotland, and I got on an airplane with you, and then that airplane landed in Panama— I would go, I don't think we're going to Scotland, you guys. I don't know exactly the way, but Panama seems like it's somewhere else that's not Scotland. So God's people are sensing that this is not going the way they would have expected. They can feel that not only are they not very close to God's promised land, but he's asked them to double back on their path and take them closer to Egypt before they set up camp. This is the very first time they set up camp because the two days prior to this, they've been traveling day and night following that column of fire and smoke. So in addition to being in camp for the first time, it's chaos. You know what it's like to take somebody camping for the first time. They're not helpful. They just need to watch. They need to not touch the tent. They need to not touch the pans. They need to not touch the food. They need to just watch. But that's everybody here. These people have never camped. So they're in chaos. That's why they have to look up and see the chariots. They're, not even, they're looking down at what they're working on. And over the hill comes this army, and they go, what is going to happen next? Even Pharaoh knows that this is not a very good tactical decision for God to move his people into this box canyon. Word of their campsite gets to him, and that is what leads him to come after them in the first place. It's the news that they are so vulnerable, so trapped, and so helpless that convinces him to throw himself against Yahweh one more time. That's all he needs to hear. In a twist of irony that only God could pull off, it actually is a trap. So the Israelites are not wrong. They feel that they're trapped. They feel that they're in a trap, and they are. The irony is that they are the bait in the trap. They are not the prey that God is going after. The prey is the Pharaoh. That's who God is going to draw in using the bait of the Egyptians, or excuse me, of the Israelites. And once that trap is set, it's game over for him, and it will transform the lives of the Israelites. But God's people don't get that. So they berate Moses, right? They attack him. They pray a brief prayer, but then they say, You shouldn't have done this. What's wrong with you? You made bad decisions. If you can remember from last week, Israel is so unprepared for battle that Yahweh himself changes the path that they're going to travel to keep them from having to pass through a land called Philistia, where the Philistines, who are really good at war, live. He wants to keep them from that because he knows that if they go against somebody who's good at fighting, it's going to break their spirit, they won't be able to hang. Yahweh chose to lead them away from the most direct path to Canaan, and they are correct that Moses has not made the best tactical decision. Their senses are right. They don't have a way out. Their enemies are closing in. There is nothing that they can do about it. Unfortunately, there's only one person seemingly in all of Israel who actually understands how to respond when you're in a helpless position and the living God is your God. It's Moses. When he says, you just need to be still. God's going to do this. He didn't break his promises to you. Like I said, Moses maybe has his fingers crossed behind his back, and he's going, come on, God, don't fail me now. Come on, you brought us all this way. It's been 80 years, and I don't think you brought us here to kill us. But even him, I bet his heart rates up a little bit, because here come the Egyptians, and everybody in Israel knows how cruel they are when they capture their enemies. So God's going to respond. This is cool. God's going to involve himself in this discourse between his people and his leader who are kind of attacking one another and not getting along. Let's read that beginning in verse 15. We'll read through verse 23 this time. So the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Which is a little sarcastic, I think. What are you crying about? Tell the people of Israel it's time to go forward. Now I'll ask you if you've been paying attention, I've tried to be clear with you, what are they facing? They're not facing the quarry, they're not facing the fortress, they're not facing the army, they're facing the water. In Hebrew, it doesn't just mean it's time to move, and we've interpreted it in English to say go forward. It literally means it's time to move straight ahead, forward. Lift up your staff, Moses. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. As if Moses knows how to divide a sea. But God tells him to do it. So that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And here's what I'm going to do, Moses. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they're going to follow you. That's right. Your worst nightmare, I'm going to make it happen. They're not going to just watch and be amazed and go home and build a temple to Yahweh and worship me. They're coming all the way in. They're going to follow you into the ocean against their better judgment. And what will I do? I will get glory over Pharaoh. And all of his hosts, I'll get glory over his chariots, his technological advancement, his political and um, military prowess, his, even his horsemen, well-trained and disciplined. I'll get glory over all of them, and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved from in front of them over the top back to behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming, excuse me, between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and there was the darkness. So that kind of is telling us there's probably a big shadow now coming across the, the people of Israel. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. One what? One army coming near the other people. The pillar of fire separates God's people from their enemies. And they kinda, the enemies have to kind of like wait until the pillar of fire moves to decide what they're going to do. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left, a wall. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots. And his horsemen. So at some point that pillar of fire has moved or lifted, and the people of Egypt have been able to get through, and now they're coming. They're following after the people of Israel. We don't know exactly where the Red Sea crossing is. I told you last week that the geography of the Sinai Peninsula is sort of like the geography of Anchorage if you just turn it 90 degrees. So we have the connect arm and the Turnigan arm and the Chugach Mountains. If you just flip that up so that it looks like a, a triangle. You've got uh, basically the Red Sea, which is one gulf, the Suez Gulf, and then you've got the Gulf of Aquaba on the other side, and then you've got the mountain range in which Mount Sinai lives at the northern edge. And so God's people are passing over one of those arms. It would be as if we drove across the bridge between here and the valley to cross the K'nick, except the K'nick is probably something you could traverse on foot if you absolutely had to. The tip of that gulf, though it looks small on Google Maps, it's about seven and a half miles wide at its most narrow point. So this crossing is probably somewhere between seven and 15 miles. If you can imagine a million and a half people having to cross through that great distance, they're moving pretty slow. They've got chickens with them and ducks and animals of all kinds and children and older people who don't move that fast. And all of them have to make their way into the water and begin to depart. And then the pillar of fire moves. And then the Egyptians are allowed to rush in after. Now what I think is interesting comes in the verses just before this. The people pray to Yahweh, but I believe that they pray without faith. The verse says that they cry out to the Lord. That's all it says. It doesn't say what they do. It doesn't say if it was right or wrong. But looking at the action that they take immediately following that prayer, I think it's pretty clear that there may be praying, like we oftentimes do, silly, ritualistic prayers that we just throw into moments where we feel like, this might honor God. I'm going to pray before I eat this salad, or I'm going to pray before I walk into work today, or I'm going to pray with my kid in the car. I'm not saying those things are devoid of meaning, but they can be. They can become things that we just do as knee-jerk reactions and our heart is not necessarily in them. I know for sure that the people of Israel were not praying with faith to the living God because as soon as they finish praying, they start harassing God's leader right away. They're like, amen. Moses, what is wrong with you? What do you think you're doing? I'm sure that the God who told Moses to speak to his people about where to go did not then immediately inspire all of Moses' followers to attack Moses. That cannot be the way that this works. God does not function like that. In your life, this is also a good litmus test, if you don't know that already. If you are upset with a person, and then you go into a period of prayer, and you come out of that period of prayer more upset with them and ready to rip their head off, you're not done praying yet. You have more praying to do. You maybe didn't pray. Maybe you closed your eyes, and you focused, you strategized, you let yourself stew up a little longer, but our God does not pump us up to go out and attack the leaders that he's put in our lives. And I'll tell you, as an elder in a local church, I know what it's like to interact with angry Christians. Part of being an elder is loving sheep with sharp teeth sometimes. Um, and I know, I understand, just as all of our elders do, what we aspire to when we aspire to eldership. Paul says that that's kind of the way that you know if this is for you or not, 1 Timothy 3. But there is a lesson for us in this story in how quickly God's people can turn on God's leader when? When their back is against the wall, or in this case, the ocean, the sea. Something impossible, when they feel threatened. That's what leads a person to go after somebody in leadership. Just to give you some perspective, uh, and this is just a little bit of of what I've heard in my experience, but in the past, these are things that other Christians have told me that I am, okay, when their backs have been against the wall. These are not nice things to say. Uh, I've been called a fake church person, that's a quote. I've been called a Pharisee. I've been called a Judaizer by another Christian, finger in my chest, shouting at me, you're a Judaizer. I've been called a hypocrite by other Christians. And I would say that's pretty good, right? For less than three years, I'm doing something if people are that mad at me, don't you think? Jesus said, woe to you when all men think highly of you. Well, not all men think highly of me. Hopefully you guys do. But here's what I can tell you. And the reason I'm telling you this story is every time that that happens, every time a person feels threatened, feels angry, feels aggressive, it comes from a position of being right where Israel is. Very few Christians walk through their life with their sword drawn, hoping to just kill other people spiritually. Most people are happy to follow They're happy to be led. They try to understand. They try to embrace unity and not be divisive. But when your back is against the wall, it's very hard to have faith, especially when you feel like God's leader is the one who put you in a position for your back to be against the wall. That is very hard. Unfortunately, we live in a world where people who claim to be following God and lead churches abuse other people. So, I understand that there are oftentimes good reasons to be suspicious of a person who speaks in God's name and may be asking you to do something you're not sure if you should do. Here's the litmus test for that it's God's word. And that's what Moses brings God's people back to. That's his response. And I'll tell you, in my experience, every instance so far where another Christian has attacked me for my leadership, God provides a way forward. That person needs to calm down. I usually need to calm down a little bit, right? Maybe Moses' advice to be still is just him biting his tongue here. I'm not sure. But it's good for us to take a minute and breathe. But when we come back together, God does provide a way for us to maintain unity. He will do that for us. And that always feels like a miracle to me, given the hostility of the initial conversation. So in Exodus 14, when Yahweh turns to his people and responds to them, like we just read, when he says, why are you crying? It's time to move. I brought you here on purpose. Now I'm going to show you why. Two mountains, a sea, and the most advanced military on the planet are a great recipe for me to show you exactly what I can do. So I think there's three reasons that God led his people into a trap, and I want to briefly lay those out for you. If you're taking notes, you can grab these quickly. First, to show that he is the only way. That is why. Yahweh is the only way. The only way. That's why he puts his people in a position where there's no other outlet. Only God can make a way when there is no way. Every other escape route is circumstantial. It's based on your good decisions, your pre-planning, your skills, your abilities, your investment, whatever. I'm not saying God can't use those things, but those things do not give God glory. And God's been clear about his objective. It's to be glorified among his family and his enemies both. That's what he will do. And so he will make a way where there is no way. Number two, Yahweh leads his people into a trap to show that he is the only truth. Only his word is reliable. Only he keeps all of his promises. It is one thing for you and I to be open to God's leading and to be considering what he says as a possibility. Maybe I believe in God, maybe I don't. But that's not what God wants. God wants every part of your life. The life that he gives us through Jesus is holistic. It's 100%. And so he goes head to head with all the best practices, all of the logic, all of the common sense that the Israelites gained when they were in Egypt. And he says instead... I'm going to put you in a place that's going to make me look like a liar. I'm going to tell you I'm going to take you one place and then take you away where you think that's impossible, but then I'll deliver you so that you'll know that not only do I know the truth, I am the truth. The truth obeys me. I don't obey the truth. The truth is only objective because I say that it is. If I say we can get from A to B by way of C, I will make that happen and that will be true. Your job is to believe me. That's all you have to do. Their circumstances, Israel's circumstances, make God's promises seem like a trick at this point. They're thinking, promised land? Yeah, right. We can either die at the end of an Egyptian spear or we can die and drown in the Red Sea. Those are our choices, God. This is the promised land. But by the end of Exodus 14, God shows that he not only keeps his word, but he does it flawlessly in ways that don't just prove him right, but show us that he has control and foresight and power in ways that we cannot imagine. And then finally, God leads his people into a trap to show that he is the only life. By bringing his people face to face with death on every side, two mountains, a sea, an army. I know I'm being redundant. I want to be clear here. This is desperate, totally desperate for them. He shows them the fullness of his own sovereignty. Not even their impending death can get in the way of his plans for their lives. Nothing stands in the way of his redemption. Salvation and deliverance are God's business, and they're God's business alone. Powerful people, Pharaoh, tragic circumstances, stuck in a box canyon surrounded by enemies, even the geography of the planet Earth that the Red Sea happened to be where it was, these things will not get in the way. If God has decided that a person will have life, they will have life. And when he gives life, he gives it abundantly. For some of us, we may hear Yahweh call himself Israel's father and Israel's savior, and we're so used to those categories that we just think, okay, that's cool, that's fine. But it's an experiential thing in the life of Israel for them to actually be delivered personally from a situation that seems so stacked against them that some of us in 2021 maybe even struggle to believe that this story is true. Maybe you're tempted to interpret this as allegory or some sort of philosophical statement about the capabilities of God, some mythological legend meant to instill principles in the hearts of people. But this is the truth. It is the gospel of the Old Testament. And when I speak in terms of way and truth and life, that's on purpose. That probably brings to mind for you John chapter 14, right? The end of Jesus' life. He's speaking with his disciples. He's preparing to go and die. They don't understand it. They're having their own existential crisis in the middle of a box canyon between the Pharisees, Jewish law, the Passover, and Jesus himself. And they don't know where to go next. They don't know what to do. In that setting, a disciple named Thomas speaks up. And he says this to Jesus in John 14, 5. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to God except through me. Thomas is asking Jesus the questions that I ask Jesus. Where are you going? (laughs) How can I know? Can you just give me a hint about where we're headed? Please, because it sure feels like the thing you told me we were headed toward is, is up there, and we're going down here, and I'm not sure why. But it's making me doubt. It's making me wonder. I'm struggling with this, God. What do we do next? Maybe when you hear Thomas speak in John 14, you can hear the voices of one and a half million newly emancipated Israelites crying out to God and saying, how will we know the way? Where are you taking us? Jesus' answer to Thomas' questions, is Jesus going to the cross the next day? As he bleeds and dies and forever opens the way between God and man by his blood. In Exodus 14, Yahweh also does the impossible to set his people free from their enemies. He splits the sea in the same way that Jesus' body is split. And God leads his people through the water from death into life, just like we pass through the blood of Christ from death into life. But it seems too perfect, doesn't it? I mean, honestly, in Exodus 14. That all of this would work out just right so that God saves the day at the very last minute in a way that almost feels like cheating to you and I. And I think it is. It is too perfect, too perfect to be an accident. It's designed this way. That's what you get when you deal with God. You don't get a God who can just anticipate what's coming. You get a God who designs the challenges to defeat them to teach you about himself, which is a different view of sovereignty than most of us operate with. We believe that God can overcome the challenges in our lives. We struggle understanding that he would bring them into our lives so that he can overcome them. But that's what the Bible communicates to us. If God is truly in control of all things, God is taking credit for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. He's taking credit for putting God's people in a position of weakness. And now he's saying to Moses, it's time to go through. The one way that you thought you would have never survived. You might have found a way to take a few hundred thousand people over one of these mountains while the rest of you were slaughtered. That's the best you can do. I'm going to take every one of you through the water, and you won't get wet. That's what I can do. By, by design, on purpose, we are reading an account of a master at work. God did not get lucky in Exodus 14. He stacked the deck against himself so that he could pull off the win of the millennium for his people. Why? Remember his commitment to getting glory over Pharaoh. We'll keep reading and finish the chapter now in verse 24. Listen for the language of what God does. In the morning watch, in the early hours of the day around midnight, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, We need to leave. We have to flee from before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against us, the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea again, and here's what's going to happen. The water will come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. So the sun breaks the horizon, and the waters collapse. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus, or in this way, Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. These people just walked through this water. They're trying to catch their breath. They're making sure, you know, where are our kids? We can't find one of our kids. Did we get all the chickens? Is everybody here? And they turn back and the water collapses. And as the tide hits the shore, bodies, pieces of armor, bits of chariot wheel washing up, evidence, proof at the feet of these people who were just enslaved by these masters, only death remains. There is nothing left to go back to. Not only does God physically remove them from the land of their captivity, he destroys their captors. There is no Egypt in the sense that they remember it anymore. It's gone. It cannot be gone back to. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians and so they feared him and they should. And they believed in Yahweh and they trusted his servant Moses. So it's mission accomplished. If there's any doubt in your mind, God got exactly what he wanted. He wanted. Nothing about the crossing of the Red Sea is circumstantial. It's not an accident. It was orchestrated. It was finely tuned to give Yahweh glory over the pinnacle of humanity. The Pharaoh's as high as you get. That's it. There's nobody stronger, more powerful, more wealthy, more successful, more attractive, whatever your metric is for human existence. He's all of those things. And now he's a cadaver floating in the shallows of the Red Sea. It's over. Not only does God deliver his people from the Pharaoh, but according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, as they pass through that water, it's baptism in their life. It's what happens after God saves you. He pulled them out of Egypt previously, but this is them getting to experience passing through the waters of death and into life on the other side. By crossing the Red Sea, by having it close up behind them, they are witnessing the death of their old masters. They are out of Egypt in a way where they can never return home. Before the Red Sea, before this whole encounter happens at the edge of the water, they could have gone back. If life with Yahweh didn't go the way that they thought, they would have had an opportunity, even if it was just in groups of 10 or 20, to travel 48 hours back into Egypt, say, I'm sorry, receive their lashes or have their fingers cut off or whatever the Egyptians would have done, but they would have had a meal that night. They would have had a bed to lay on, even if that bed was just a pile of straw. And in their hearts and minds, that was worth considering. There was something about that old life that was so familiar, that had such a magnetism over them, that they were thinking about heading back. But now they've crossed the water, and it's not going to happen. It's impossible. Their physical deliverance teaches you and I about our spiritual deliverance. Remember what Harriet Mears said. This is the gospel of the Old Testament. Jesus saves us from our old master, and then what do we do? We're baptized, right? We pass through water to demonstrate to other people what God has done for us spiritually, but also to experience that for ourselves, to go under and realize that the life that we left behind is gone, it is inaccessible. It has not been politely taken off, folded up, and put in a drawer so that we can go back to it on a day of weakness. It's gone. It's dead. It's in the water. It floats on the shore of the sea, a carcass. That is what Jesus has done for you and I, Any appeal that the New Testament makes to your personal holiness is rooted in the idea that you are a new creation in Christ. And in the same way that Yahweh gets glory over the Pharaoh, the old master of the people of Israel, by delivering his people and destroying the Pharaoh and his armies, God also gets glory by defeating the sin in your life, the wickedness and rebellion, the inner darkness that you carry with you. As you are delivered from that, And even as you are in the water, submerged and brought out in baptism, you are communicating to the world, God is who he says he is. And he's stronger than all the stuff that you can't defeat on your own. There's a magnetism to him. There's a sense of being in his orbit, a gravity of knowing him that draws me not only into his presence, but away from everything I left behind. And he seals that door. The waters of baptism are a one-way road. You go in, you go under the water, you can never unbaptize yourself and go back out. The water baptism that we experience is seen for the first time in Scripture here in Exodus 14. Passing through the sea, experiencing deliverance, participating in that deliverance, this is what the people need to begin to trust Yahweh. Not just to have been delivered by Him, but to believe that He's good and He's for their good. No, crossing the Red Sea did not save Israel. They're already God's people called out by him, set apart by him, consecrated by him. And baptism doesn't save us either, but it does give the glory of our transformation as followers of Jesus to God, and it allows us to participate in our own deliverance. So here's what I'll tell you, church. Whether you know Jesus today or you don't, this is what's coming for you. Okay, I can be a prophet in your life for just a few minutes. God is going to take you to places you don't expect. He will. He will. And not only will they be surprising places like, oh, this is a fun twist in my life. Some of them you won't want to go to. Someday in the future, we'll preach Jonah. There's a story for that too, okay? But there are times and places where God says, follow me, and you go, I I don't think I can. I don't know how to do that. I don't see a way forward, God. I didn't bring my swimsuit to the edge of the Red Sea. I'm not sure how we get across this thing. And he says, you just need to go forward. I'll split the water and take care of the rest. When you do that, when you find that your back is against the wall of culture or your back is against the wall of the expectations of your always secularizing society that you live in, you will play one of two parts. You will play the part of Israel. You may be angry. You may accuse others of having tricked you or misled you because God is not giving you exactly what you want in that moment. Or you may be in the position of loving the person who's playing the role of Israel, leading the person who's playing the role of Israel. Having followed and led faithfully as best you know how and now you find yourself under the gun from the very people you've been sacrificing to take care of you'll be in one of those two positions you'll either have said we need to follow God and here's where we're going to go and people have gone well I trust you but I don't know how this is going to end or you'll be that person and you'll get to the decision point and you'll go I don't trust you as far as I can throw you this is crazy we can't we'll, we won't survive if God calls us there we'll lose our job we'll lose our income we'll lose our insurance we'll be too far from family They don't speak our language. People get shot and killed in that country, and God wants us to go there and tell people about Jesus. We can't do that. God, who is your father and who loves you and did not save you so he could destroy you later, will care for you. If you feel trapped today, the way forward might be through the wall. It might be through the water. It may be time for you, if you never have before, to accept the inevitable death of the life that you have been trying to construct with hard work and good decision-making. You don't have to panic. You don't have to turn on the people who are close to you. You probably will at some point, and you can say you're sorry, and they'll forgive you, and God will forgive you. That's okay. But you have the choice to turn to Jesus. Like Thomas, you can say to him, I don't know the way forward, and he'll say to you, it's me, I'm the way forward. You'll say, I don't know how I'm going to survive this, and he'll say, I'm the way that you'll survive it, and you'll say, well, I don't know if I can trust anybody, and he'll say, you can trust me. That's what way and truth and life mean. So if your eyes have looked to anybody other than him in any area of your life, your parenting, your job, your singleness, your loneliness, your sickness, COVID, the city, politics, whatever it is that consumes your your, uh, resting thoughts, just put that focus on Christ. That's all you have to do. If you don't know how to do that, pray to him. Ask him to make himself known to you. He'll do that. He'll honor that request. May we pass through the waters, church. We're going to have to. But let's do it like the Israelites and not like the Egyptians. Let's go through as God conquers our old masters of sin and darkness. And then when we get to the other side, let's look back and acknowledge what he's done. And let's worship him for that. That's what I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the chance to gather today. Thank you for the men and women, the children who are True North Church. God, we appreciate that you've brought us together. And I ask that as we attempt to navigate faithfulness to you and loyalty to you and love for you, God, that you would allow us to learn to follow you where you lead us. That seems so simple, and it is the hardest thing in the world. God, we trust you more than our inertia. We trust you more than our momentum. We trust you more than our relationships, than our legacy, than our history, than our past, than whatever future it is that we think that we're building. We want to put all of our chips on the table in Jesus' name. We love you. We trust you, God. We pray these things. We believe you're listening. We trust that you'll you'll be good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.